Before this episode starts, I just want to, uh, since we're starting a new year and everything, again, I just want to thank everybody so much for all your support. And if you have, you know, followed us or subscribed to us on multiple different platforms and are, you know, commenting or sharing with your friends and family, our podcast, it really, really, really means a lot to us. Um, we absolutely love to have new people in this community, new people who give feedback, who offer their suggestions and thoughts on the stories themselves, or, you know, leave reviews for us to improve or reviews that they like the content. So thank you to everyone uh, who's part of this community. Yeah. And even if all you do is just listen and subscribe, we appreciate it either way. Thank you. Welcome back to another episode of Is Fitz Happy. I'm Luke. And I'm Emma. And this week we're discussing chapter 24, The Ring's Gold. And this is, since it's the beginning of one of the last sections of the book, maybe about over halfway to almost two-thirds of the way through. Yeah, I'd say so, based off my physical copy. Yeah. Uh, this is a serpent chapter. Yes. And like you said, we are... In a new season, we're going into high summer. Yeah, I don't... Is Was there a summer before this? I don't remember. I it's thought been... it was spring, if I'm being honest. But maybe okay. because it worked. Yeah, I know. I just kind of... I don't know if they all exactly follow the seasons. But they have some sort of season title on all of the sections. Summer. It is summer. Okay, so it's only, you know, a month or two or uh, like a fourth of the book. Okay. It looks kind of like a third. Well, this third is a lot bigger, so not exact, but <laughs> <laughs> there are three chunks that I can see so far. So, yes, Serpent Chapter, we are back with Malkin and Shriver and Caesarea. And as rereaders, we know the Ring's Gold is the name of a live ship. Yes. And I think as new readers, you would know that as well, because I think they've mentioned the Ring's Gold. That's true. I think he has been mentioned once or twice. Mm -hmm. So in passing, at least. So it, at the very least, it's going to look familiar. Yeah. And it starts off with saying that the, that the tangle had grown. Malkin seemed to take both pleasure and pride in this. Shriver had more mixed feelings because she's discussing that a lot of these serpents are still animals. Yes. And while they are watching out for signs and awakening some of these serpents to their past memories or awakening them a little bit more than they were, a lot of them aren't responding to that. So it's still kind of a, uh, a dynamic of they have to watch out for these feral animals they don't want to get overpowered or anything like that. And now, since there are so many of them, food has to be shared. Right. It does specifically say that there are 23 core members who have some type of memory. And then easily twice that number following behind that are not yeah. awakened in any sense. So minimum 60 serpents in this tangle, which is huge. Yeah. And they it's keep a growing. Of, a lot of area. Yeah. That's... A lot of serpent. <laughs> I don't know. But yeah, so it's definitely worrying to Shriver because 
where are they going to get food? How are they going to survive? This is kind of scary. And who knows what's going to happen next? Yeah. And um, Shriver is saying that while they're growing, they're still traveling. And, you know, even the most generous provider, a.k.a. slave ship, can't Mm -hmm. provide for them all. So they're hunting as well. And when they're resting, they have questions for Malkin and he can't answer them all. Right. He spoke as plainly as he could, and yet the words were confusing. Shriver could sense his own bewilderment behind his prophecies. Her hearts went out to him. Sometimes she feared that the others might turn on him out of frustration. She almost longed for the days when it was only herself and Caesarea and Malkin seeking those answers. When she whispered as much to Malkin one evening, he rebuked her. Our folk have dwindled. Confusion besets us from all sides. If any of us are to survive, we must gather as many as we can. It is the simplest law of the plenty. A multitude must be born for a few to survive. Born, she said, the question unspoken. The recombination of old lives into new lives. It is what we all hear summoning us. Our time to be serpents is over. We must find she who remembers that one will guide us to where we can seek rebirth as new creatures. And so hearing those words is just an example of asking more questions. More questions pop up with his answers. People are like, what sort of new creatures? What does it mean to be reborn? How does that happen? When do we know the time is? Where are we going? And He's struggling to know those answers or respond appropriately. Right. I will say, I feel like the way he explains what being born is, is actually pretty good as people and readers who know the answer. But it would be really frustrating and hard to grasp if you were a serpent and had no concept of this, because of course it's going to sound foreign and strange and wild because you really just have never heard of this concept before. And it's really unclear to me if the concept of being born and life cycles and such are something that they should know and have forgotten, or if this is something special to Malkin because he is somebody with more memories than others. I feel like it's something that they just, they may know a little bit more or they've forgotten more Mm -hmm. than they should have. But in general, I feel like it's something that the prophet like Malkin or she who remembers or he who remembers would have brought back to them more fully. So I feel like they still wouldn't fully know, but they wouldn't be as confused. Right. You know, they would have some sense of like, yeah, we're doing something that we need to do. Yeah, that's fair. He kind of continues straining to think of something. Shriver notes that that drains him more than a full day of traveling, trying to bring up these fragments. And he says, We will be as we once were. The memories you cannot understand, the dreams that frighten, come from that time. When they come to you, do not chase them away. Ponder them, pursue them into the open, and share them. We are long past due to change. So long past due that I fear something has gone terribly wrong. Someone will remember for us. Others will come to protect us and guide us. We will know them. They will know us. 
The silver provider, Caesarea asked quietly. We followed, but she knew us not. So uh, before I continue on, Malkin, of course, is talking about the memories that the serpents have of when they're dragons. Not to right. push that away. Just try to recall anything that you can to help us out. Right. And it's obvious that things are becoming increasingly more dire. I mean, clearly that has been the case since the start of the book where people right. are starting to, or the serpents rather, are starting to forget who they are and what their purpose is. But here it's pretty clear that if it doesn't happen now, it never will. Mm -hmm. And those are pretty high stakes to have, especially when people are so confused and have so many questions, which some of them are unable to be answered because Malkin himself has forgotten. Mm -hmm. And so when Caesarea brings up the silver provider, Silic answers and speaks to Kalaro, the giant serpent that joined them in, I think, the last chapter that we had with them. Silic, I believe, was the bard. Yes, minstrel. I think so, too. Silver, silver gray, he hissed. Do you remember, Kalaro? Zechreus found the great silver gray creature and called us to follow it. I do not recall that, Kalaro trumpeted softly. He opened and closed his huge silver eyes. They spun with shifting color, except perhaps as a dream, a bad dream. It attacked us when we gathered close around it. It threw long teeth at us. Silic turned a slow knot through his length, pausing when he came to a scar gouged deep. The scales had grown over it, were thick and uneven. It bit me here, the scarlet whispered hoarsely. It bit me, but it did not devour me. He turned to look deep into Claro's eyes of seeking, as if seeking confirmation. You tore its tooth from my flesh for me. It had pierced me, and it stayed in me, festering. I do not recall, Claro re replies regretfully. But Malkin is extremely angered at this. The silver being attacked you? He attacked you! How could it be that one who gives off the smell of memories turns on those who come to him for help? I do not understand, he suddenly bellowed out. There are no memories for this, not even the taste of a memory. How can it be that these things happen? Where is she who remembers? Perhaps they forgot. I, I was mistaken. Teller... As is brought up, that was the minstrel. Yes. Perhaps they forgot, Teller said with black humor. The slender green minstrel had not gained much, much strength since he had recalled his own name. The effort of maintaining his identity seemed to consume all his energy. How he had been before, he had forgotten himself, no one could say. But now he was dour-humored, sharp-tongued whip. Despite recalling who he had been, he could seldom bring himself to sing. Malkin whipped on him. They forgot, he roared. Have you seen this in a memory or dream? Do you recall a song that speaks of a time when they all forget? Teller makes himself smaller and less significant, saying, It was a jest, great one, an evil jest from a sour minstrel. I beg pardon for it. A jest with perhaps a grain of truth in it. Many of us have forgotten. Could the ones who remember, the memory keepers of us all, have likewise failed in their tasks? The silence kind of descends, and they ponder that. And that's kind of what the group decides, or at least Malkin decides. Like, well, we have tried to awaken others who have forgotten. We need to find one of these 
and try to awaken them to their own memories and make them remember. Right. So this is kind of a terrifying thought to me personally, (laughs) because the poor live ships have no idea and they are housing lots of people on them. I don't know, I guess, how many people it takes to run a ship, but I would say a lot, like a good amount. So it is, as a human being, scary to think that you could just be sailing on the on the ocean in this world and be taken down to the bottom because they're like, oh, there's a creature that remembers. And technically, live ships are alive, so... Mm-hmm. And they do have the memories. They're not wrong. It's just a little crazy and scary. <laughs> <laughs> and so that idea freaks me out. But it is really interesting that, number one, Malkin can't read sarcasm. And number two, didn't already have this thought after doing weeks slash months, probably just weeks, of gathering all these serpents and trying to get people to remember who they are. Or, mm-hmm. Sorry, serpents to remember who they are. Right. So I don't know. I found that very interesting. I have a, a tangent question here. Okay. So Malkin says, think with me. Let us consider this. It could be true. It could account for much. Accessoria, Shriver, and I saw a silver being, one that smelled like she who remembers. She ignored us. We know that was Vivacia. But we also know that Kalaro and Silic and Zekris encountered one that they thought was a one who remembers. Mm-hmm. So were all of the cocoons that the Rainwilders found and turned into live ships one who remembers? Or do they smell of those old memories because that's what they, the cocoons are and it was made of the cocoons, right? Because those were all... A, one who remembers is basically just a serpent who remembers all the memories of the dragons, as far as I can tell. So are they actually supposed to be, like, was Vivacia supposed to be she who remembers when she was born? Or does it just seem like that because they house all the memories? Because they could have just all been normal serpents or dragons that were hatched and they were supposed to eat the memories, right? Right. But... Do they just smell like one who remembers because they have those memories? So I was thinking about this too. I think Vivacia specifically is a she who remembers because Silic says Circe's found the great silver gray creature and called us to follow it. There isn't any mention about this other mystery Live ship being a she who remembers or having. Malkin says it is, though. Yeah, I guess. But I I feel like Malkin wasn't there. Right. He wasn't. So maybe Malkin thinks there's only one silver creature. It doesn't seem. I don't think so. Because he says, like, they forgot. What if Mm. they, you know, like he, he talks in multiples. Yeah. I'm. With this conversation, and I know we've talked about it, and Mm -hmm. we've kind of operated on the assumption that Vivacia is a she who remembers. Honestly, I'm kind of leaning towards the other thought now, is that because their next step was going to be a dragon, and they were going to consume their cocoon and get all of the memories of a dragon, Mm -hmm. 
does not mean that any one of those serpents was a she or a he who remembers. Right. So I don't think we can actually reliably say that they were. That's fair. Definitely. And I think any live ship created out of any cocoon would smell or seem like one who remembers to other serpents because they house the memories of all the dragons. And that's, I think, what the confusion is with the serpents. So then, do you think the toxins that the serpents with memories shoot out, like Malkin and She Who Remembers, are those toxins memories, not toxins at all? Um, I have no idea. Because it does say, I mean, uh, there's multiple occasions of Malkin putting his toxins on people and it makes them remember. But right. nobody else seems to be able to do or None of the other serpents can yeah. do that. I'm saying there yeah. are special serpents being born and like Malkin right. seems no, to be sure. special. There are, there do seem to be he or she who remembers like the Oracle on um, other island that Wintrow frees eventually. But in terms of the toxins themselves, I, I, I don't know, because there's nothing really in there, and I don't, uh, my theory really doesn't extend to that. That's fair. I was asking because if the toxin, toxins don't have a specific smell, why would a she who remember smell like memories? Like, just naturally smell like memories? Because we know that the ships do, because they are literally made of memories. Right. Whereas serpents are not, they are creatures with blood and guts and stuff. Mm -hmm. So she who remembers shouldn't just smell like memories. Then it would have to be the toxins giving that smell. I, I mean, maybe for the she who remembers, they like have special secretions to attract people to them to be able to lead where they're supposed to go. I don't know. I feel like I just have more questions then. Yeah, I think that's just a lot of um, guessing of how it works because we this is an abnormal cycle, right? Well, true, but I mean, it's not super guessing how it works because we know number one that she who remembers has a distinct smell because they think they say that multiple times they think mm -hmm. these are, and she who remembers does have to lead them somewhere. Right. So mostly the guesswork is just what that means exactly. Right. And I, yeah, I have no idea. Definitely could be. Well, Malkin decides here that they have forgotten and we must force them to remember. And so they go off. I mean, Malkin has a direction to go on. So he's finding himself energized and a bit happier. And the wonder that shone in so many eyes shamed Shriver, but her doubt was too strong and she voiced it. How? How can we make them recall us? Mulkin loops around her, and she tastes his toxins as she moved beside him. They were besotted with joy, intoxicatingly free. Just as we have reawakened the others, we shall seek one, confront one, and demand that one name its name. And so they hunt. They're looking. And they had been days seeking silver. Once they had caught the scent of one, Malkin had allowed them only brief pauses for rest. Their purposeful pursuit had near exhausted some of them. Slender Tellur had lost color and bulk, 
Many of the feral serpents had dropped behind as Malkin sustained the pace. Perhaps they would catch up with him them later. Perhaps they would never see them again. For now, Shriver had thoughts only for the bulky creature that moved purposely above them. The tangle ghosted along in his shadow. Now that they had actually caught up with him, even Malkin seemed daunted by their task. In bulk, the silver creature far surpassed any of the serpents. In length, he was the equal of even Kalaro. "'What will we do now?' Teller asked bluntly. "'We cannot wrap such a creature and drag it down. It would be like wrestling a whale.' "'Actually, that would not be an impossible task,' Kalaro observed with the confidence of his size. He brought his mane up aggressively. "'It would be a battle, but there are many of us. We would prevail.' Malkin says they'll not, they're not going to begin with force. And he says, await my call. And they obeyed as he left them and swam up toward the great silver shape. So Malkin leaves the tangle. He goes to confront this live ship. Yeah, so definitely starting out with good intentions. And I mean, overall, I think the idea is pretty nice. They're trying to get help from what they expect as a creature that should know how. Right. And interestingly, we have the line, this one was not a provider Mm -hmm. because Shriver and Malkin have met Vivacia, who was a slave ship when they met her. So, yeah, there are different levels to all this. (laughs) Mm -hmm. And Shriver describes this creature as a creature. The ship has, you know... Neither fins nor flippers that Shriver could discern, a single flipper-like appendage at the back of his rounded belly, but he did not appear to use it to move. (laughs) So they're trying to explain it like a living thing. Yeah, and it's spending most of the time in the lack, or most of its body seems to be in the lack. Yes. So that's odd. It's moving at a weird pace. Just everything about this is strange. And... Shriver isn't really sure what to think. Yeah, and so Malkin calls out, like, hey, do you have a name? I'm Malkin of Malkin's Tangle. Please answer me. I demand to know your name. Yeah, and the ship, of course, just keeps moving unconcernedly. Like, the creature is ignoring them. But he was aware of them all the same. So I think this is a really important thing to talk about because... There is a shared awareness between the ship and the serpents. And that's after Mulkin releases toxins. On yes. Him. I guess after the toxins that specifically talked about, but we know Vivacia could feel the serpents even when they weren't actively pursuing her. So I just find it really interesting how there is that little tether of connection. And I, I think it's because they all share all the memories, right? Like basically all dragons are constantly in a cycle. They're always being reborn. And so memories from the very first dragons get passed on to the next generation and then the accumulation of those memories get passed on and so on. So I really feel like this, there's that bond there of memory, even if they don't remember each other. It's still there and eventually strong enough to create sort of a connection where they can give the live ship his memories back. Right. 
Because remember, Vivacia is very, very young. She doesn't have a lot of human lives covering up that dragon. Exactly. Or a lot of identity. So I think she was able to form that connection with the serpents whispering to her a lot easier. Fair. And Ringsgold, I think, is one of the oldest. Mm-hmm. And so he's got a lot of layers to peel back. <laughs> Fair. So when Mulkin seem, uh, releases toxins and the ship seems unfazed, it was only after he had passed that... A thin, shivering from the silvery body, a faint sense of uneasiness. It was slow, slight a rea- so slight a reaction, scarcely a response at all, but still she took courage from it. He might pretend to ignore them, but he was aware of them all the same. And Mulkin f- feels the same as Shriver, and all of a sudden he whips his body in front of the creature, where... The ship either has to collide or stop and demands again, like, I am Malkin of Malkin's Tangle, I do demand your name. And he just hits Malkin, of course, because it's the a ship. ship. Yeah, the <laughs> ship hits Malkin and they're, all, all the serpents watching are aghast that he would, the this creature would run down <laughs> Malkin. But the creature does not have eyes in the water necessarily and may not have really seen Malkin. Mm-hmm. So all of the serpents start kind of rubbing up against the ship and nudging him a bit. And Cobalt Kalaro even rammed him, striking a blow that near stunned the serpent, while Caesarea battered the creature's single flipper. Every member of the Tangle released their most potent toxins so that they passed through cloud after cloud of their own poisons. Their attack slow and baffled the great creature. He hesitated in his course. Trevor heard shrill keening. Did he sing into the lack, even under the full light of the sun? Disoriented and gasping in the wild array of toxins, she rose to lift her head out into the lack. It was there she found his face and flippers unlike any she had ever beheld. He had no mane, but spread great white wings above him, like a gull coming to rest on the face of the plenty. Parasites infested his body. They hopped and clung to his upper body and wings, making shrill cries. At the sight of her, their agitation increased. Emboldened, she lifted as much of her length up as she could. She flung herself on onto the Grey One's face. Who are you? she trumpeted. She shook her own small mane, lashing him with her stinging cells, spattering him with her toxins. Say your name. Shriver of Mulkin's Tangle demands that you remember for her. So, obviously the parasites are the humans, the crew that is scrambling around... They are making attempts to find out why this is happening and yeah. to save their own lives and the lives of their, their live ship because they're being beset on all sides and attacked by a tangle of serpents here. And a serpent has laid <laughs> herself across the, the deck a bit, uh, close to the live ship, and more serpents are starting to join on deck. Yeah, I also want to point out that it does say Shriver puts her own toxins on the boat because I just said not that long ago, there doesn't seem to be correlation between other serpents, toxins and memory. But this kind of contradicts that. Uh, but we haven't yeah. seen it before now being utilized there that I'm aware. There seems to be descriptions of their toxins kind of almost like smelling salts kind of enlivening other serpents if they're specifically designed to do that. Cause we've talked about before that right. there are like shark repellent and things like that too. 
um, or bait, stunning bait fish, things like that. But the fully aware serpents seem to have some control over even if they are not prophets or leaders of tangles. So, yeah. I don't know. I guess also it seems like toxins are sent at each other under the water to give a feel for feeling and emotion just to like share what the thought process is it almost feels like yeah like when two serpents are about to fight they kind of fling the toxins at each other so it must also stem from that doesn't necessarily mean she has the power to bring forward the memories another form of communication yes yeah not a nice one though (laughs) (laughs) the silver one suddenly leaned far over Shriver thought he would dive to escape her. Then she saw that it was not by his own will that that was done. Malkin had united his tangle's efforts, and their combined force pushed upon him, making him wallow far to one side. His white wing clipped the water, and some of the uh, uh, one one human fell, and one of the feral serpents surged forward to snatch it up. They had only to be shown once. The entire school of them then converged on the silver one. With a violence that surely Malkin had never intended, they battered and rocked the creature. He cried out wildly and swung his flippers about in frantic efforts to strike his attackers. This only enraged the feral serpents more. They added their undisciplined toxins to those already clouding the plenty. Fish stun and shark repellent battered her senses. The feral serpents were doing most of the work now while Malkin and his tangled circled the embattled creature, repeating over and over their demands for his name. More and more of the parasites plummeted into the water. The creature's great white wings flapped wildly as they dipped into the plenty, first on one side and then the other. Finally, when the creature was laid over almost completely on his side, Kalaro flung his great length out of the plenty. He crashed down onto the creature's unprotected flank. Swiftly, other serpents joined him, both sentient and feral. Some leaped up to seize his stiff limbs and fluttering wings. The silver creature tried to roll back, but there were too many of them. He could not overcome them. Their weight overwhelmed him and drew him under, away from the lack, and deeper into the plenty. As they pulled him down, the parasites tried to leap free of him, but snapping jaws awaited every one of them. That is so scary for the humans involved. Terrifying. For the live ship, too. I mean, yes, also the live ship. But yeah, scary for everything. Just out of nowhere. Yeah. And for seemingly no reason. Mm -hmm. They have no idea. And I just can't imagine, like, all this is happening and we get to know because we're the readers and this is a pivotal scene. But, like... The family of the live ship will never know. Yeah. This is a crazy... They wouldn't even think this happened. They're just going to disappear off the face of the earth and no live ship is going to turn up later. Yeah. So, genuinely, this is a crazy thing that nobody knows Mm -hmm. happened. That's a weird thing to think about. (laughs) So, Malkin is still insisting about your name, like tell us your name. And the creature is bellowing and gesticulating wildly, but gave them no words. I do want to specifically touch on this because I think this is interesting to me because clearly the live ship is speaking 
right? Yes. Like human tongue. Yeah. And I mean, I don't know what language they speak in Bingtown, but whatever human language is not perceptible to the serpents. Right. However, serpents are able to communicate with humans a la Kyle when he almost threw Wintrow overboard. Manipulate their emotions. Mm -hmm. Also, dragons communicate to humans through their minds Mm -hmm. all the time. But if they don't speak human, how are they communicating? Is this just like, it's magic? Dragons can speak human. Can they? Well, not out of their mouths. No, but <laughs> but hear me out. Do dragons ever under, seem to understand humans that have no skill in them and therefore cannot hear the dragon speak? I feel like yes. I could be wrong and we'll have to pay attention to that. But I feel like they have understood speech outright, even if just getting getting the implied meaning from reading other people's minds, you know? So maybe they don't have the full grasp of the language if they didn't have their magic. Right. And just had ears, but they can understand it in terms of this is my implication and meaning behind it as I'm speaking it. Okay. I don't know. I just find this concept really interesting because... Because because they had minstrels that sang to them, like... Um, Selden does. Selden, right? right? Yes. Yeah, Selden does. Later on, Tintaglia like praises him because Selden is uh, praising her. Yeah. So obviously she can understand the intent, the meaning, and the words, the specific words. But I would, but that's not exactly the same because he clearly has some, it's, it's explained in, I think, the next trilogy that humans have to have a little bit of skill or maybe it was last trilogy that it was explained that every oh, the human capacity for skill or whatever. yeah almost all humans have some mm-hmm. capacity and those who don't are just unaffected by magic in this world apparently <laughs> but it's really i don't know i just find it really interesting that the magic transcends language and it made me think about how fits when he talks about how he sees the world like when he does art for the first time for Ketrikan or not Ketrikan, sorry for patience. He makes fuzzy shapes of the world because that's like how he sees. But whenever he uses his wit, he makes a much more clear picture that is much more defined I don't know how to like ex- like tie these two together exactly, but it just feels like the magic in this world is part of the life force and really, I don't know, it transcends. I mean, yeah, creatures. Right. And I mean, that's language, that's, and that kind of links into what we've been talking about overall for like the first trilogy too. Mm-hmm. Is that the magic that, as we know it, the skill and the wit seems to kind of originate. And combine and meld and be a life force for the dragons. Right. That's just what they are. And they drink liquid skill itself, you know? So it's just part of who they are. It's not, um, they're not doing magic, right? They're just communicating how they can. 
I guess, sorry, I went off on the wrong tangent, maybe. Um, what I meant to talk about is fits in night eyes when they talk. It's through pictures, not necessarily words. It becomes language, but when they first meet, it's more pictures. Like they both. Yeah, conveying you know, feelings or whatever. Yeah. yeah. And then turns into words, whereas it's not really described that way for dragons. But like you said, there's that connection where it's their essence. So maybe it doesn't work for everyone in the world. It's just dragons, because if they if you have that bit of dragon essence in you, then they know you and can understand you. Yeah. But I like the idea that a skill user from Buckkeep could communicate through skill to someone on the other side of the world with no knowledge of the language and still be able to fully communicate without realizing. Mm -hmm. Interesting. Well, Ring's Gold is getting pulled down and still trying to communicate with some sort of human language. And Malkin is still demanding, speak, remember for us, Give us your name. What was your name? The ship is still struggling, and some of his smaller, brittle limbs broke away while his wings grew wet and heavy. Still, he struggled to rise to the top of the plenty. They could not drag him down completely, though the tangle managed to hold him below the lack. Speak to us, Malkin commands. Just one word, just your name, and we will let you go. Reach for it. Reach back for it. You have it. We know you do. We can smell the thickness of your memories. Ringsgold is still battering and fighting, and his mouth gaped and stretched with his sounds, but no sense came out of him. Then he suddenly went still. His eyes, small and brown, went wide. His mouth gaped once, twice. Then he suddenly relaxed in Mulkin's grasp. Shriver lidded her eyes. The silver-gray creature was dead. They'd killed him to no good end. Then he suddenly spoke. Shriver's attention snapped back to him. His voice was thin, almost bodiless. His puny forearms, four limbs, I guess. They don't know what arms are. <laughs> Tried to encircle Malkin's thick body in an embrace. I was Draquius. I am no more. I am a dead thing, speaking with the mouth of memories. His trumpet was shrill and weak, barely audible. The tangle grew still, gathering closer in awe. Draquius spoke on. It was the time of the change. We had swum far up the river to where the memory silt was fine and thick. We had spun our cocoons, encasing ourselves in thread woven of memory. Our parents laved us with the silt of memories, gave us our names and their memories to share. They watched us, our old friends. They celebrated our time of change under the blue skies. They cheered us as we wallowed from the river to the sunny banks to let the light and the heat dry our cases while we transformed ourselves. Layer upon layer of memories and silt they wrapped us in. It was a season of joy. Our parents filled the skies with their colors and songs. We would rest 
through the time of cold, to awaken and emerge when the days turned hot and long. He closed his small eyes as if pained. He clung to Malkin as if he were part of his own tangle. Then the whole world went wrong. The earth shook and split. The very mountains were shattered and oozed hot red blood. The sun dimmed. Even within our cases we felt it fade. Hot winds blew over us, and we heard the cries of our friends as it snatched the breath from their lungs. Yet even as they fell, gasping, they did not forsake us. They dragged us into shelter many lives ago. They could not save many of us, but they tried. I give them that they tried. It was only for a time they promised, only until the dust stopped raining down, only until the skies shone blue again, only until the earth stopped quaking. But it did not stop. He describes this cataclysmic event. He goes on to say that there were almost daily earthquakes. The river flowed thicker than blood with it, with all the ash that was falling over. And the mountains burst into fire. And they called out to the elderlings, their friends, as they say. But after a time, they did not answer. And he says, without the sun, we could not hatch. We lay in the deep darkness, wrapped in our memories, and waited. So I think we should pause here because there is a lot that we're learning. First of all, it is really exciting to get to finally have the answers of what the serpents are going towards. So we finally have somebody who knows the answer, number one, and number two was around when it happened the right way right back before the earth has changed so as a first-time reader you're finally getting those answers you're finally getting answers that seem to make a little bit more sense at least and explains kind of the mystery and the background of the rain wilds before it became the rain wilds i do find it really interesting that this specific city that they are in that the this dragon is from was covered in lava and ash and it talks about because it's basically talking about a volcano eruption right yeah multiple multiple Mm -hmm. volcano eruptions and the reason i find this so interesting is because looking at the map of the world as it is i assumed the mountain range is the mountain kingdom because that's what this area backs up into but that cannot be where the um explosions are happening where the volcano is happening because Kelsingra is untouched by ash so no lava or volcanoes have gone off in Kelsingra there could be other mountain ranges slash volcanoes I want to refute that, actually. Okay. The same way that the skill road keeps itself clear, Kelsingra would keep itself clear. The memory of a pristine city. Why couldn't the other elderly city do that then? Because Kelsingra is fairly unique in that it's full, like it's as big as it is. Maybe because they had a well of silver there and they worked silver there. I don't know. Mm-hmm. 
but that that's my interpretation because of the huge rent and because it's built into a mountain i assumed that was one of the volcanoes okay it could be wrong it could be just like a huge earthquake that was in a mountain right there but that's what i assumed it was one of the uh the places that it started i don't know yeah i don't know either i just thought it was weird that that's a good thought i hadn't thought about that before though yeah but i was also thinking besides just no ash there's not really description of um lava rock right anywhere near kelsingra yeah which i mean maybe it i i don't know anything about volcanoes i want to be very clear about that <laughs> maybe after hundreds of thousands of years there isn't any evidence anymore i know australia has a volcano that hasn't gone off in like a million years so and i don't know that there's lava rock around that <laughs> so maybe maybe it does just look like a mountain after a certain amount of time i don't know but i yeah. would geologically I, it might be a short time but i don't think hundreds of thousands of years have passed since that and this time right that's why i'm like i just feel like there should be a little bit more evidence although yeah. if it was the mountains by Calcingra that were the volcano that exploded. It would kind of explain why the road just disappears and is completely gone in that one section. Um, whenever Fitz and the gang are going up the <laughs> side of the mountain. Yeah. Yeah. Because lava took it away. I don't know. But also, again, then. I mean, there were also earthquakes there? daily for right. a while. So. Right. It's not a super big deal and it doesn't really matter. It's just something I was thinking of as I was reading this. I was like, wait, but where are the volcanoes then? Right. And obviously volcanoes can go back to being dormant. I like, mm -hmm. I know that much, <laughs> but I just was wondering, so which mountains were it? Were they, I don't know. Yeah. Just a thought. Yeah. It, it's hard to tell. And I don't know if Robin Hobb was... Uh, did enough study on to, to think of all these things or if it was just kind of like a distant past cataclysm and this is the result, but things still need to be accessible for the plot. Right. I and I know. mean, <laughs> to be fair, I cannot read maps. So, so maybe the map does explain. And if somebody wants to write in and be like, actually on this map in the first book, it, <laughs> it shows a mountain that could potentially have missed Kelsingra, but hit the rain wild. Please tell us because yeah, there's I would also love to know. no real like elevation maps or, right. you know, like it's just basic. Like, yeah. So I don't know. It's a suspension of belief. It's a fantasy yeah, world. Absolutely. You know? Definitely. But I just when things little things like that happen, I like to point them out mm -hmm. yeah. um, to feed my ego. No, <laughs> just because I find it interesting. But yeah, uh, we learned that we learn how it goes. We learn the cataclysm and. And the result and why things are the way they are. And for the first time reading through things, this is the first true chapter where you get answers. Right. And Malkin chimes in at that point and says, we don't understand, but speak on. We're listening. And Draquia says, you do not understand. I do not understand. After a very long time, another people came they were like and not like those who had sought to save us. We called out to them joyously. Surely they had come to at last to deliver us from the darkness. But they would not hear us. They brushed our airy voices away, dismissing us as less than dreams. 
Then they killed us. Shriver felt hope grow tiny within her. I heard the screams of Taria. I could not grasp what was happening. She was with us, and then she was gone. A time passed. Then they attacked me. Tools bit into my cocoon, splitting it open while it was still thick and heavy, strong with my memories. Then... They threw my soul out onto the cold stone. It died there, but the memories remained trapped in the layers of the cocoon. They sawed me into planks and from them created a new body. They made me anew in their own image, gouging away until they had shaped me a face and a head and body such as they wear. And they drenched me in their own memories until one day I awoke as someone else. Ringsgold, they named me. And so I became a live ship, a slave. And now we learn that Ringsgold was the second live ship created. So Taria must have become uh, Tarman. Yes. Is that what you're going to point out? Yes, I was going to say. You like almost raised your hand. I, you ra- <laughs> I like to raise my hand. Nobody can see it. And whenever I have something to say and Luke is reading, I try to raise a hand so he knows to stop. And I've basically been raising my hand this whole time. I have a lot of thoughts on this specific It was passage. a paragraph. I didn't want to stop in the middle of That's it. That's fair. That's fair. <laughs> but yeah, Ringsgold seems to indicate here, unless there were multiple places that they were stored, the logs were stored, which is possible, mm-hmm. that Taria was the soon-to-be-dragon that died and became Tarman, because we know Tarman was the first yes. ship created out of uh, the Wizardwood. Which we have not met in this series. Correct. And that Ringsgold was the second, and therefore the second oldest, live ship. Right. So I thought that was really interesting that he is the second oldest ship. We get confirmation of that, at least from what we can discern. The other thing I found really interesting about this is that he calls his physical body his soul. I feel like that's crazy to me. Uh, Maybe because... Well, he's also very confused in this, right? Right, for sure. He says, then dot, 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 he became perplexed. They threw my soul out into the cold stone. Yeah. I don't know. It just is such an interesting concept to me that like something that is basically all spirit consider itself to be body and not the soul right because it's a very 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 unique situation yeah because dragons use their memories as a physical substance Mm -hmm. to cocoon bodies in so they can change the inside of them the memories their thoughts their feelings seems to be within the wood itself yeah. The, like the memories itself. Mm-hmm. And the body is just then a vessel that is growing. And then when they consume those cocoons and they, you know, get all of the, the memories back within to their whole body. Yeah. So for this brief stage, which is only supposed to last like a year. A couple months. Yeah. I think I think they, they do it in the summer or the spring. Well, this is in winter. They celebrated our time of change under blue skies. They cheered as we wallowed from the river. And let the light of the heat dry our cases while we transformed our shell- ourselves. It was a season of joy. We could rest through the time of cold. 
So yeah, like I, fall. I think it was, yeah, like summer to the next summer-ish. Like there's still a serpent in summer. They are fully cocooned by winter. Yes. So the process is done by the time it gets cold. Mm-hmm. So, so maybe a full year, yeah. Either way. Yeah, so about a year-ish. So it's a very, very short period of time, a very short transition where everything is kind of flipped for them. And during that time, then you take their very, very temporary body, Mm -hmm. which is normally their inside, and turn that into a body where they're lasting a very long time. Mm -hmm. So their perception is flipped. So their normal body is like, well, this is what's inside of me and what is like the heart of my new being because they shaped me into their own image. This is what I was supposed to be. So that's my soul. Yeah. <laughs> he's, he's also very confused about it because it's new in the right. history of the world. Nothing like this has happened as far as we know. Right. And we do know that dragons consider themselves to be their memories. So it makes sense that he would have that sort of personhood with the memories. I mean, he's still cognizant, even though... He isn't a being, but he is. I mean, the magic mm-hmm. clearly has kept who he was supposed to be alive, which yeah. is very interesting because I think it makes me wonder, like, if you kept prodding, could he then be like, actually, I'm different dragon name from my previous life? You know what I mean? Like, I don't think so. I, I don't think it's that defined, okay. like in Avatar, where they can like go <laughs> through, you know, the previous Avatar's memories kind right. of ish or meet with them. Mm-hmm. I, I think it's more of like, we have snatches of memories from them. We have knowledge accumulated throughout everything. Mm-hmm. I don't know if it's specific as that. That's fair. Yeah. Okay. Yeah, no. So that was my only other thought was, oh, but no, this section specifically is really important because it's the first time everything is fully confirmed. I know we had the chapter with rain and his mom where they talk about the creatures that come out of the sacks, the logs, but yeah. Yeah. And it's a confirmation of the feelings of the dragons trapped within live ships that they're slaves. Yes. Yeah. That they don't want to be that way, but they don't really have a choice because the memories have encased over their own. And that sets a baseline for Vivacia's next steps when she becomes Bolt for a while. Yeah. As the dragon kind of take over her because of this feeling of resentment of we weren't aware of it, but we were also slaves. Yeah. I also find this a little bit more sad when you think about poor Paragon. Yeah. Because Paragon has, we know, two dragons. So, of course, when Paragon awoke, he wasn't right because there were two different beings fighting for control of consciousness that they probably would have had to have double the amount of people Mm -hmm. die before he would be a regular live ship that was whatever they wanted him to be. But maybe he never would have been normal. I don't think he ever would have been quote unquote normal like the other live ships because with one body and you have two consciousnesses fighting in it, it's similar, not the same, and I'm not totally equating it, but it's similar to Fitz and Night Eyes being in one body. Right. 
or how the old blood deems that an abomination, right? Mm -hmm. And they didn't do it by choice. Right. This is not a pairing. They probably, they could hate each other, you know, they could have completely different ideas about things. And then you're layering a third personality on top. Yeah. No, it is really interesting to me. It also makes me wonder if the identity of the live ship is its own thing as well. I think so. I think they they develop it based on the human stuff. So I think it's kind of a fictionalized identity, but something that they can cling to and that a lot of live ships seem to grasp and be like, this is who I am now and I'm comfortable with that. But I was wondering if maybe they grasp onto the parts that match their original personality maybe, versus maybe. this is a completely like not who they, how they would have acted think, as a dragon at you all. You think Ophelia's dragon is a, a degenerate gossip? Yeah, I would love that for her. <laughs> well, it just made me think about how Paragon specifically is the only ship we hear about going back and forth between childlike and adult-like. And I, I think that's, I, I don't think that's dragons personally. I think that's the stunted lives that he absorbed when he was first awakened. Well, that was, so what I was, what my thought process was with my idea of it being the personality that the dragon grasps onto, because mm-hmm. it's most like them. Yeah. That's why I was wondering if maybe the more childlike, free, spirited version of Par or uh, yeah of Paragon was more like the personality of one of the dragons whereas mm, maybe. the cra- crabby adult that's too serious was more like the other and that's why it feels kind of like a swap Could be. but in one I don't know that's yeah but I mean maybe not at all it just is you know yeah Could tangents be. so we learn a lot of new things in that paragraph but the serpents don't know how to grasp it. Shriver can tell that it's a monumental tale, a tale of an ending of all of her kind, but she did not know why. She was almost glad that she could not comprehend the tragedy. Milken says, I will mourn you, Draquius. Your name conjures echoes of memories in my soul. Once, I think, we knew one another, but now we must part as unremembered strangers. We will let you go. No, please! Draquius's eyes went wide, and he strove to cling to Malkin. Do not let me go. You speak my name, and it rings in my heart like the bugling of the Dragon of Dawn. For so long I have forgotten myself. They kept me always with them, never letting me have solitude, never allowing my old memories to surface. Layer on layer of their little lives they spread atop mine until I believed I was one of them. If you let me go, they will reclaim me. It will all begin again and perhaps never end. There is nothing we can do for you, Malkin apologized sorrowfully. There is nothing we can do for ourselves. I fear you have told us the ending of our own tale. Undo me, he pleaded. I am no more than the memory of Draquius. If he had survived, he would have been one of your guides to bring you safely home. But he did not. I am all that is left, this poor shell of a life. I am memories, no more than that, Malkin of Malkin's Tangle. I am a tale with no one left to tell me. 
so take my memories for your own. Had Draquius survived his transformation, he would have devoured his shell and taken all his memories back into himself. He did not, so take them for yourselves. Preserve the memories of one who died before he could trumpet his own name across the sky. Remember Draquius. I feel really sad for Draquius. Mostly because as a rereader, I know that they're like months, if not a few years away from... Like 20 years. That happens when Fitz is 60 and Fitz is like... 30 fair okay never mind then i thought (laughs) this happened this book series i'm like man they're like weeks away from being able to turn back into dragons that's really sad no they're like 35 years or something a little less sad (laughs) still sad for sure but a little less sad um Yeah, yeah. (laughs) yeah no but it is it is really interesting to have this character who is talking about themselves as though they aren't a live thing? Yeah. Uh, the tragedy of Draquius, Draquius to realize in one fell swoop that, oh my God, I am not the person that people made me to be. They enslaved me. And oh, I was already dead for years. Yeah. And then be like, well, just end me. Because yeah. I, uh, I don't want to be a slave again. To be fair, I don't think he thought he was dead in the cocoon. They were still waiting. Oh, no, no, no. I'm yeah, talking yeah. about like oh, when oh, yes, they yes. saw like. Sawed him up. Yeah, 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 sawed him up and made him into planks and, and rolled his soul out. He had to have the realization as he was telling the story or right before he told the story that mm-hmm. like, I have been dead for a long time. As he was realizing he was that other person before. Yeah. That's <laughs> really. Yeah. Really a lot, sad. A lot all at once. You know, yeah. If somebody came up to me tomorrow speaking a foreign language and like, or like a out of this world language, and was like dunking my head in water, like tell us your name, and then all of a sudden I realized, oh, I'm not actually alive. Like my whole life is a complete lie. That would be crazy. That would be yeah. really hard to swallow. So shout out to Draquius. Dra- uh, yeah, oh my gosh, Draquius for being able to talk through it and still get information out to the to the serpents who needed it Mm -hmm. and offering up his memories yeah Malkin's like it's gonna be a poor memorial but we don't know how much longer we're gonna be around to remember you and Drakus is like well take strength from me then and purpose from these memories free me I don't know why I wrote this so I just want to share this but in this section, I just wrote mummy vibes. <laughs> I don't know what about this he, section. He loosened his grip on Malkin and folded his stick-like fore, forelimbs oh. across his narrow chest. That's what it was. Free me. Mummy vibes. <laughs> mummy vibes. He's like going back into the coffin. Yes. Where he came from. With arms over his chest. You yes. know, he's got mummy vibes. <laughs> in case you want to know what my notes look like. In the end, they obeyed him. So they crushed and tore and ripped off chunks, and they took that, and some parts, they say, were no more than dead plants like the regular wood. But all that was silver and smelled of memories they took and devoured. Malkin ate that part of him that was shaped as a head and forebody. Trevor did not think he suffered, for he did not cry out. 
Malkin insisted that all partake of Draquius's memories, even those who were feral, were subtly urged to the sharing. The silver threads of his memories had dried long and straight and hard. When Shriver took her portion in her jaws, she was surprised to feel it soften and melt. As she took it in, memories dawned bright in her mind. It was as if she swam from clouded water to clear. Faded images of another time came to mind and glowed bright with color and detail. She lidded her eyes in ecstasy and dreamed of wind under her wings. So they get a little bit of a boost here, and I don't remember, uh, we'll have to wait for the next chapter, but I don't remember if they gain much strength from this, but they gain a little bit more clarity and enough to move on. Yes. And it's, uh, it's a very interesting time if you're first reading through this, because it's still a very confusing chapter for the first time readers. Right. You get a lot of things answered, but it's all written in that esoteric and very opaque writing from the serpent's point of view, mm-hmm. where you have to interpret, you know, oh, they're talking about sales and these parasites are humans. And then the head of like, I, in the middle of the chapter, it's, they named me Ringsgold, a live ship, a slave. And you're like, oh. Yeah. <laughs> Although you would already know that it was a live ship because yeah, it's yeah, silver. Yeah. So. You could piece it together. Yeah. But that just kind of like lays it bluntly on the table there for you. Yeah. But yeah, uh, lots of big answers here. Definitely. And pretty, I, I would say it's a, a sad chapter. Very it, melancholic. Yeah, it's it's good. And it does definitely have positive outcomes, I think, I would argue. Yeah. But still has that, yeah, melancholy to it. You, you really, I think Hob, these last two chapters in a row, is just like, hurt him. <laughs> Get him give him the sad. Um, but no, it's, I think, a really good way to drop the knowledge. And I feel like it's such an exciting part of the book. There's really this turn of, as the reader, you know more. And so you're able to be like, okay, so this has to happen next. Like, how are they going to become dragons? Are they going to find she who remembers what is going on? Yeah. And that's a really important thing. The she who remembers question has not been answered yet. Mm -hmm. True. Because they assumed that these were the she who remembers. Yes. However, rings gold slash Darqueous. Draqueous. (laughs) Dragon. Just remember (laughs) Draqueous has also told them that he would have been an adult flying and helping them. Yes. So not she who remembers or he who remembers. So he or she who remembers would be a serpent, right? Yes. But I guess we don't know if they know that. Yeah. As a reader, you wouldn't necessarily know it. But yeah, so that, I don't know. I'm still kind of of the opinion that they're just, they smell like he or she who remembers because they have the memories around them. Definitely could be. Yeah. Thank you so much for tuning in. Any last thoughts on the chapter, Emma? I had a random question we don't have to answer, but all of the serpent chapters are from Shriver's point of view, basically, right? Yes. I mean, it's all third por- person point yes, of view. Yes, Shriver. Okay. Why don't we ever get to see any of the other serpents? Do you think it's just because that's too many? Yeah, maybe. A consistent point of view for what, four chapters a book is probably Mm -hmm. better than 
jumping around and trying to get a different personality or something. Fair. Fair enough. And you can, you can follow her line of thinking. Yeah. And her feelings and how that develops and just kind of assess that. Less confusion probably for the reader. True. And I guess Shriver is a good character because she doesn't know everything, but she trusts that there's a path going forward and has enough doubt to ask questions. So. Well, thanks so much for tuning in. Please let us know if you have any thoughts, feelings, questions, or theories about this chapter or any other chapter that we've read or any books upcoming. You can let us know by emailing us directly at isfitshappy at gmail.com or you can message us on any of our social media platforms, Facebook, Instagram, Twitter, YouTube, Threads, Threads. On all of those, please leave a comment, send us a direct message, whatever you want to do. We'll read them for sure. Can't wait to hear what you guys have to say next week. All right. Now we finally get to talk about some stuff that you guys have brought to our attention. It's been a couple weeks. Yeah, we obviously had the weeks off for our Christmas break, uh, holiday break. But then we also decided not to do the questions that had built up for last week, just because it's not one that maybe everyone wants to listen to. So we figured we'd wait till everyone could hear. And... Yeah, so without here we further are. ado, <laughs> <laughs> we have quite a bit of backlog. So, we're going to start with some stuff that is a little bit older from email. And to start, we had listener Alessandra write in to tell us that the fool does, in fact, play an instrument. In fact, they play two. Uh, in fact, there's three. We had an email from Jason who says that the fool can play the penny whistle as well. Yeah, so... But Alessandra did give us some uh, screenshots of passages. Yes. So, for sure, Fool did play the harp and the... Sea pipes once as well. yes. But that is yet to come. Uh, That's, I believe, when they're on the Paragon. So, we missed it and forgot when the Fool played instruments in the first trilogy. Yes. But thank you to both of those users for pointing that out. And I knew, like... Same with all the other people who kind of chimed in like, yeah, we thought that the fool played instruments. Like, that's where it comes from. It's just little lines here and there of like, oh, put my harp away or put his harp away or played a whistle in front of the. (laughs) To be fair, I think in last trilogy, fool made a harp for. For Starling. For Starling and played on it. So it wasn't their harp. Right. It just they knew how to play it clearly. So I don't know, but it is one of those things where the more focus is on Starling and Starling's ability to sing songs. Fitz was going through stuff. Absolutely. As usual. (laughs) So it's really interesting. Those little tiny things that in the moment don't seem that important. And then later you're like, wait, did this happen? (laughs) So, (laughs) So we really appreciate Everyone who reaches out and shows us stuff like that, where it's like, oh, here's the text where it says it. We love that. So mm-hmm. thank you to both Alessandra and Jason. And we also had an email from Greg. They're a little bit further behind in listening to everything, but they wanted to chime in and 
talk about a conversation that we've touched on before about how elderlings are created and a discussion around that. And I know we had questions about it and then some users have chimed in with who was there when Tintaglia was released from Cancun and how did people become elderlings and so on and so forth. And then the discrepancy in the Rainwild Chronicles where you have to partake of like a scale or their blood or something like that. Mm -hmm. And I wanted to bring this up because Greg does have some good opinions about that that discrepancy there. Greg says that Hob also does give herself an out when it comes to making elderlings. When the whole blood and scale ritual is introduced in Rainwild Chronicles, it is mentioned that sharing minds with an unhatched dragon or witnessing a dragon hatching can make accidental elderlings. I'm pretty sure it falls into a literal definition of a retroactive continuity but not necessarily the generally understood retcon uh, or changing an event that was previously established. I kind of agree with that. It's not, it, it's kind of borderline. It's not a complete retcon, but it's giving herself leeway for what had happened in previous books. Yes. And to be fair, I think it does make sense to have that be a thing where there's just a lot of magic happening there. There's a lot of silver in the air. So it makes sense that, especially in this world, I feel like magic isn't so cut and dry. It's very loosey-goose. Mm -hmm. <laughs> so I'm not necessarily mad about it, but I'm glad that we do have a little bit more of that. Yes, there was something kind of changed in later books to explain. Or to give a definite path to Elderling yes. and like a definite definition of how to create one yes exactly but and also an explanation for the previous happenings <laughs> yes yeah definitely and i mean it does still if talking to the cocooned dragon create can create an elderling you have to wonder was anybody else talking to the cocoons besides rain obviously not and maybe not they thought that it was people going crazy when they did that so you would avoid doing that but it does a little bit open the door to nobody else was talking to <laughs> Tataglia. I'm guessing it's not only just talking, but probably. Right. In conjuncture with. Yeah, yeah, and sharing minds. I mean, Tintaglia was in Rain's mind and Rain was in hers and vice versa. The same thing with Malta. So. Definitely. Greg also does assert here that Ronica is their favorite character and I think that we should be nicer there. So another another Ronica stan here. You know what? We love a Ronica stan. Um, we should be nicer probably. We should really be nicer to all the characters. They're just trying their best. I love to be mean to characters though. Not as much as you love to be mean <laughs> to certain characters. Fair. But I'm like a baseline kind of you should know better. And you're like, oh, precious. And also I hate this person on different <laughs> ends. Fair enough, fair enough. You have, you have more dynamics and, and I'm more of a, a steady like, mm, yeah. come on. <laughs> <laughs> so yeah, so thank you to Greg for writing in. And then to finish up with the email sent in, we had an email from Jonas about our previous episode um, on episode 182. So that was the episode about... Cirilla. Cirilla. And, uh, Chelsea and Captain. Yes. 
Jonas wants to say that he's in line to uh, punch Cosco in the face and throw the captain overboard after a swift kick to the balls. So uh, I think we asked that at the end of last episode of who is who is right behind Emma. Yes. Yeah. (laughs) So Jonas claims that spot right there, but uh, also agrees that the trope that we discussed is usually handled poorly, but Hobb does it quite well but it's still a gut punch to read every single time right it's definitely not a pleasant chapter and i don't think it ever will be for most people but it is something that is done well at least i guess Mm -hmm. (laughs) i don't know i if you did skip last episode i did say that i don't love violence of this kind towards women in fantasy books and even though i love Hobbes writing I still don't love that it's there. It's well-written. I will agree to that. And I've heard the people who say that they are glad that it's done the way that it is. It brings attention to an issue that is real. I just personally not, I don't know. Yeah. I think even if it's realistic, it could, I could use none of it. it. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) I could go without But Jonas is also seeing the light at the end of the tunnel and is very, very excited to get back to Fitz and Night Eyes and the Tawny Man trilogy. Yeah. So we are, we're kind of getting close. Uh, We we also mentioned last episode that, you know, we will have at least another year in live ships because we haven't even started the third book yet. Yes. (laughs) And I'm sure that there'll be multiple part two (laughs) episodes. So we're expecting like probably a year and a half and then we'll get into it. So it's, uh, we're excited as well. I, I feel this way. I'm going to say every time, but it's literally the second time that I'm starting to feel this way because at the end of the first trilogy, or, you know, near the end of the second book, I was also like, well, let's kind of just move on. We got, we've been spending a lot of time in this world and with this plot. And I think I'm starting to get that way with this book only mm-hmm. slightly because it's like moving quickly now. Things yeah. are really yeah. starting to pick up. But I think it just comes a time, you know, when you spend two to three years in one trilogy, you're like, I want to get to the next one because yeah, I know that's right. also good. Yes. <laughs> so, yeah, we're looking forward to it, but we still have lots of cool stuff happening in this trilogy yet. Yeah. I don't think I've hit that wall yet. I'll probably get there halfway through next book. Yeah. I just, I don't know. Just wrap it up. <laughs> I It's harder to, I think with the last trilogy, it's just fits and he's so depressed. And so spending years on that, it's like, okay, I need something not depressing. <laughs> Although I guess this book is, series is yeah. just as depressing as Robin the last Robin Hobb is not the one to go to for <laughs> happy no. stories. <laughs> no, but, you know, Robin Hobb is the one to go to for entertainment because these books are really good and they are entertaining. And it's nice to get a different worldview every once in a while, but I am yeah. missing fits already, so... Well, thanks to everybody who emailed in. We do have other stuff to discuss, so we should move on, I think, Emma. Yes. Yeah. Uh, Just another tangent. (laughs) (laughs) I think we'll start on Facebook. This is an older episode. We had some comments on episode 181, A Change of Heart. Yes. I'd like to start with the most lighthearted comment and also one that made me giggle personally, and that is from... Irene, 
who <laughs> posted that while we were discussing Greg, because in this chapter, Greg and Althea are breaking up essentially. Yeah. Um, and when we discussed Greg, all Irene could think about was a scene from the Swan Princess. And to those of you who have not seen it, those of you who have, it's the scene where the main prince is finally in love with the main princess after years of them growing up and hating each other. And she asks him what he likes about her. And he says, Oh, you're so beautiful. And she goes, yes, but what else? And he says, what else is there? (laughs) And everybody kind of smacks their forehead. It's so funny. That was my favorite movie growing up. So it's really funny that that, (laughs) that Irene brought that up because I'm like, yes, it perfectly fits. What else is there? Uh, <laughs> and it, yes and to be fair Derek Prince Derek does get better throughout the movie that is who says the line but that is a very good astute scene to bring to that chapter and if you would like to watch the little clip Irene has kindly left a link <laughs> we also have comments about how from Cookie Baker who says that our discussion about how Greg sees Althea has made them realize that Efren Vestrit saw Althea in a very similar way to how Greg does. He did not groom Althea to be captain, but he groomed Brashen. He said to Ronica that he, uh, he said to Ronica that he wanted her to have some freedom in her youth before she settled down as a wife. She could be the blood family member required to be on Vivacia, but he never gave her the skills to be captain. Yeah, and I think we've touched on that as well, where, yes, he was progressive for his time, uh, and yes, he allowed her to do things because she was his favorite and he had no sons, Mm -hmm. but he also didn't have illusions about what life could be in Bingtown. And yeah, we we know that he kind of wanted to leave Bingtown Mm -hmm. as well and didn't want ties to the Rainwild, but he didn't make that extra effort for Althea to be truly, truly independent. He didn't give her the tools to do it. He definitely gave her tools to be different than her peers and the other women in town and wasn't afraid of her being different. However, it was still within that confines of first and foremost, being a woman that must carry a child for her family. And I find that very interesting. And I feel vindicated because I said from the beginning (laughs) You still think that makes him a bad person? I mean, listen. <laughs> you'll you'll grasp anything you can get. You know? I, yeah, and I'm not saying Cookie Baker says that Efren is a bad guy. I am putting that on <laughs> this text of C. But no, he's he's fine. I think he did just, what he could. Yeah, he was highlighting the, the similarities, you know? He's progressive for what era he is in, and I will give him that and that alone. <laughs> So thank you, Cookie Baker. We then also have a comment from Ellen about the same episode. First of all, defending Althea because we were a little bit harsh on the fact that Althea didn't break things off with Greg she earlier. She was waffling with Greg so much. Yes. Yeah. And Ellen says that sometimes you have a vague feeling that you don't really trust and therefore don't feel comfortable to act on. And with so much going on in her life, it's hard to know what is what. 
I think she really needed clear, quote, evidence that their differences were uncompromisable. And she finally got it and felt solid enough in her resolve. Which is fair. I'm still going to stand by my like, <laughs> come on, Althea. <laughs> I, I think I will give her a little bit more forgiveness with that explanation i like ellen pointing to the fact that there's a lot more going on than just her romance her romantic life like right that's yeah 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 not really the highest priority for her i will however say i think that she did not go about trying to discern that in a quicker way and actively sought to distract herself with greg so yeah, true i do think she's still a little bit has responsibility for taking so long to figure out her own feelings but i will grant that things are a little crazy and it's not exactly the easiest thing to prioritize so i will give her a little bit of grace there i apologize (laughs) ellen also has some thoughts about kenneth in this chapter um for this chapter kenneth has killed the cook who knew him on igorit's ship yeah, not necessarily knew and recognized him because they, right. they didn't see each other face to face. He didn't know, but he the cook was definitely from Igrit's crew. Yes, and specifically, this is a cook from a ship that is captured in mm-hmm. in the chapter. So this is not the cook on board. This is a cook on a ship that they have captured yes. to show Vivacia how cool pirating is, mm-hmm. and um, he destroys her. So during that scene, I talked about how or I think we both did a little bit, how there is this weirdness coming from Kennet because he feels very unthinking when he's doing very methodical. It's not very... It's from Wintrow's point of view. So yes. we, we just get to see him, you know, go over to the galley and kind of fall into a very quiet trance and not really thinking of his surroundings. He falls quiet and kills the uh, kills the cook and then as he's walking out it seems like he's waking up from a trance or some sort of dream or something like that and he then just kind of like dismisses everything after that it's done it's over right and ellen brings up that knowing how he usually thinks in his head she thinks that he had a lot of fears and internal vulnerability thinking of all the harm this old crew member could do to his reputation and self-image I think a huge part of his, quote, need to kill everyone of Igret's crew is that they are people who have seen Kenneth being small, powerless, and abused. He wants to erase his own, quote, weakness from ever having existed. So he feels like he has to kill anyone who ever witnessed it. And yeah, I think that's a, a very valid interpretation of Kenneth's motivations. Yeah, and I, I really like that take. I like... The idea that it's just kind of this overwhelming, almost panic that he cannot be weak. And we see that with his compulsory need to get these tattoos and then have them burned off. Right. He needs to get rid of his mistakes and his past. The past. Yeah, especially. And so I really like that explanation and I think it's really good. And Ellen does go on to say that him kind of recollecting himself is basically rebuilding his walls and his image, his self-image, his carefully built image of himself. Right. So thank you for that, Ellen. We always enjoy your takes. 
So we have some comments on episode 182 as well. And this was, as we mentioned, the last episode that we were talking about uh, with Cirilla. Yes. And we have uh, a comment again from Ellen here talking about how how Hob writes villains. Yes. And how it is very, very one-dimensional for a while. Like the Chelsea, or excuse me, like the Out Islanders in the first trilogy are the unseen, unspeakable, evil raiders that have no dimensions to them, really. And it's not until Tawny Man where we get some of those reasonings, we get some of that dimension right. to the motivations, to the characters, to their, you know, their triumphs and their failings. But this chapter, Ellen is saying... It feels like the Chalcedians are just portrayed as the, quote, simple animals with no depth, no reasonable reason to why they are so callous. And Ellen says, I'm not sure if we ever get much of a deeper understanding why that culture have these aspects, or if it's actually a bit of, quote, lazy writing just to make them evil without reason. But we had some good back and forth and some comments from other uh, people in our community particularly Cookie Baker and Bastion, who had some responses and some explanations from what they remember from the books. Definitely. So Cookie Baker brings up that with the raiding party in the final trilogy with B, you can kind of see a little bit more of the way of thinking for Chalcedians. Mm -hmm. And specifically Duke Ellick talks about his father strangling his brother for disrespect and Kerf talking about growing up with his mother, which is unlike the other boys who are taken away from their mothers at seven. Yeah. So definitely a different culture. And Bastion kind of expands on that a little bit more, even basically saying that the out Islanders are, matriarchal based right everything kind of extends through the mother house their lineage is extended through the female side of the family tree right and chalced it's kind of the polar opposite where everything flows through the male side everything is driven by the man in that society right because only the sons remember their father's name is a belief held by the Chalcedians, which is revealed in the Rainwild Chronicles. Bastion also says that the Duke also reminisces about how Chalced used to be more tolerant to women. Their most ancient laws state that daughters can inherit if there are no sons, which is not exactly an explanation of the status quo, but I do think this gives a bit more depth to their views. So it seems like, uh, I don't specifically remember that, quotation but it seems like it's gotten more misogynistic over the Mm -hmm. past couple generations yeah definitely and there seems to be more of an effort to remove men from mothers and women in their early years and really put that toxic pressure on them to be quote-unquote masculine (laughs) right like whatever that means to a chalcedian and that means no room for emotions. So I, I really do think that's that there is some insight there. And it is a good thing to know that it's coming up, especially something we can continue to look for. I don't think we would not have, but right. it's good to keep looking for those little bits to make them more sympathetic. But I am sort of with Ellen on this because I feel as though 
even in the Out Islanders case, we still, by the end of the trilogy, are a little sympathetic to them, right? Like, and during the middle, you can kind of tell something is happening to them, making the red ships happen. This isn't necessarily a natural part of their culture. Right. And there are the sympathetic people who are being displaced from their homes and their livelihoods and then being mistreated in this new country that they're coming mm-hmm. to. And so I feel like that gives more depth, whereas we don't really see any Chalcedians in last trilogy or this trilogy that uh, are the only one we see that is from Chalced heritage, but not of Chalced is Kyle really. Yeah. And he's not a good example for it. No. And yeah, so it's not, I, I really don't feel like we have any sympathy for Chalcedians. Like there's not a group where we can go, okay, maybe they're not all bad. There's hope. <laughs> yeah. It, and I think that's the the big difference, at mm-hmm. least for me when reading these where we have, to, we have to wait until Rainwild Chronicles to even see like little bits, you know? Yeah. Yeah. So I think that's a big thing, especially with we have the even with people who are making weird choices or seem outlandish and barbaric to our characters that we're reading from. There's usually a glimpse of this being not the norm. <laughs> Whereas here, it's kind of like, oh, they're just bad. <laughs> so I get why Ellen feels that way. I also feel that way when reading. But we will yeah. definitely be it looking def- forward. It definitely does take longer for the Chelsideans. So, yes. Yeah. yeah. So thank you to everyone for bringing things to our attention and for talking with us. We really like hearing your guys' point of view. And we enjoy getting to see what you guys have to say about our episodes every week. See you next week. 